worship as we dive into God's Word. And it's just great to be with you. Isn't it wonderful to worship in spirit and in truth, the presence of God this morning, uh, the joy of fellowship? Uh, I'm honored to be able to bring the Word this morning. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of a story, and these happen, unfortunately, uh, all too often, of the... uh, the military report of the the test pilot, the, the pilot in training who uh, was going along and uh, she thought she was right side up and when she pulled the stick to accelerate out of, uh, out of that uh, situation, she was in fact upside down and went straight and drove her plane straight into the ground. And she thought she was right side up, but she was actually upside down. This morning, as we begin this series on the Sermon on the Hill, Jesus is going to take every part of our life that may be upside down, and he's going to turn it right side up. He comes into this morning, he comes into our meeting as uh, this one who said, my words are spirit and they are life. So what we're going to do Uh, over the rest of this fall, is we are going to uh, let Jesus speak to us. We're going to let him speak to us clearly and personally, and we're going to let him awaken us to an entirely new life, an entirely fresh revelation of who he is and what he is all about. And this this message that we're going to study, by far and away his most famous teaching is so full uh, of truth and wisdom uh, that we're going to be able to experience and grace, full of grace. We're going to be able to experience uh, what John said in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus came among us full of grace and truth. And so that's the the hope for this series. And this morning, uh, we're going to uh, look at an introduction, the the end of chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, So I want to briefly walk through chapters 1 to 4. So if you need a Bible, uh, then put up your hand. Did everybody get one of these booklets when you came in? Everybody have those? Okay, great. You can refer to that as well. Uh, Somebody don't have booklets. Ah, okay. We will pass out the booklets. Uh, These booklets are meant to facilitate our study of the Sermon on the Hill. And uh, in, each, in each page, there will be the week's text, and then there will be a page on the right-hand side to off to, for you to write down application. Uh, when, I, when I think of application, I think the easiest way to decide how I'm going to do application is to write down a statement in your book that begins with the words, I will. I will. So this morning, uh, when I get to the end of the message, I'm going to invite any of you who have an aha during this message to share your I will statement for this passage. So let the Holy Spirit speak to us and um, let us put into practice through obedience, uh, the very words of Jesus. So, Father, I thank you for this privilege we have this morning to look at your word. I thank you for the gift of the scriptures. I thank you for the gift of Jesus. 
And I ask God that you would somehow, in this time, do an amazing work in this congregation. I ask these things in Jesus' name. And I ask it for myself as well. Amen. Amen. All right. So Matthew uh, has to address, before Jesus starts speaking, he has to address who is it who's speaking to us? And that, that would be a good question if you somebody said, hey, go watch this TED Talk or go to this lecture. You would say, well, tell me something about the person who's speaking. So Matthew does that. He starts off with a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah in chapter 1. And it reminds us of the book of Genesis and this long list of names. And many of us might say, wow, this is a really boring genealogy. This is a really boring part of the Bible. But it does say that from Abraham to David, there's 14 generations. From David to the exile, where Israel was kicked out of the land into Babylonia, was 14 generations. And then from the exile to the birth of Jesus, 14 generations. And obviously we, we don't, it's not our normal way but to do things, but in that day, uh, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet was attached to a number because the numbers we use weren't invented until the ninth century. So the letter da for David would be worth four, and the letter v for the second syllable of David would be worth six. So David, the name David, has a number attached to it, which is 14. So these 14 generations, and Matthew's laborious reminder of that three times in the first section lets us know that this is the Davidic king. This is the king that God promised to rule on David's throne in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Then it goes on to say that this one is also named Emmanuel, which means God with us, reminding us that what Isaiah said in chapter 7 is about this particular man who happens to be God with us. And then he goes on and he uh, tells the story of the Magi, the uh, Eastern astrologers who came with frankincense and myrrh and gold, gifts for Jesus, to worship the king. And what they were doing was they were following a star. Most people believe that, astrologically speaking, that was the retrograde motion of the planet Jupiter that guided them uh, to the town of Bethlehem. And so you have... In the heavens, a sign of this king being born, which is what was prophesied in Numbers chapter 24, way back at the beginning of the Bible. So all of a sudden, if you are even remotely familiar with the Old Testament, your flags are going up. Ah, this is somebody special. And then we see that he's born in Bethlehem. They go back to the city where David's family was from and That fulfills the prophecy that Micah said in chapter 5 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then Joseph, in very much a parallel to the Joseph of the book of Genesis, gets all these dreams that tell him exactly what to do. So Joseph the dreamer, part 2, navigates his family around the effort by Herod to kill all the babies and ends up in Egypt so that what was spoken by the prophet Hosea could be true of this one, that he was a son called out of Egypt. And so on it goes, as Matthew paints the picture, that this Jesus is also going to headquarter, his family is going to move to Nazareth, 
which is uh, another, in English, we would say Shootville. It's the, the, the village of olive shoots, which would remind us of Isaiah 11 that this would be an olive shoot from the stump of Jesse's family tree, Isaiah 11. So all of a sudden, again, with a very basic understanding of the Old Testament, Matthew is saying, this is a special speaker. Then he is introduced by the one who's a voice in the wilderness, the one Malachi called Elijah, the one Jesus called Elijah, that he would come and forerunner for Jesus, and that's John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist introduces him, and then, and then he's baptized by John the Baptist, and the heavens open, a, a dove lands on him, the Holy Spirit, and the Father declares from heaven that this is my Son, quoting Psalm 2, verse 7, whom I love, quoting Genesis 22, where Abraham is told to take the son he loves, Isaac, to go kill him. And, and, and Abraham obeys. And then in Isaiah, that this is my servant whom I'm well pleased with. So God introduces Jesus as the future king who's going to die instead of Isaac, Isaac, instead of Isaac and who's going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, who will go to the cross for us. All in that introduction, Jesus is spoken to. And then finally, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he has hand-to-hand combat with Satan, which fulfills the third chapter of Genesis, where God says he's going to send a descendant of Eve to go do battle against the serpent, the, the enemy, Satan. And then Jesus prevails in the desert by reciting the word of God, fulfilling Psalm 119, verse 11, which says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So all of a sudden, in, in four and three and a half chapters, Matthew paints this glorious picture of this is the one who's speaking. So when he begins to speak, the reader and certainly the people there would say, whoa, this is the, the one that God arranged the cosmos, the, the light bodies in heaven to direct the wise men to. This is the one who's been prophesied over and over in the scriptures. And this is the awesome son of God coming to speak to us. And so we dive into today's text in chapter 4, verse 12. And we see that Jesus uh, has heard that John has been put in prison by Herod Antipas, who is over, is the Tetrarch. Pontius Pilate is ruling over the south of Israel. Herod Antipas is ruling over the western part. And Herod's brother, Philip, is ruling over the northern part. So we see that Jesus moves uh, to Galilee and he leaves Nazareth, which is run by Antipas, And he goes to Capernaum, which is run by Philip, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. This is a map uh, made by looking at what the territorial inheritance was for each tribe in the book of Joshua. They come into the promised land. God gives them each a little chunk. So the chunk of Zebulun is that purple one in the middle there. That's where Nazareth is. 
And then the chunk called Naphtali is the one on top of the Sea of Galilee. And so Capernaum is in Naphtali. So we see a shift from Zebulun into Naphtali. And Isaiah says, It'll be the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles gets its name because when Solomon built the temple, he gave Hiram, the Gentile, 20 towns in Galilee. Also, the Assyrians came, and they had settled in Galilee. And also, there was a, an area where it says Basan there, Bashan. There was an area called the Decapolis in the day of Jesus, which was 10 cities which were filled with pagans. So that whole northern part of Israel is called Galilee of the Gentiles because it is filled with non-Jewish people. And the Jews had just come back in the first century B.C., had resettled after uh, the Maccabees took over. So a lot of the people living in the north were Jews who had recently returned to the land. And it says, the people are living in darkness. They've seen a great light. They're living in the land of the shadow of death. But there a light has dawned. And see, so we have, we have, we have the, the reality of sin. The reality that in this, in this conglomeration of people, there's lots of wickedness and sin. It's very much the land we live in today, full of wickedness and sin. But we also have sin. We also have uh, those moments where we intentionally or unintentionally walk away from God. We disobey uh, what he might be leading us to do. I know this week I felt a, uh, a conviction of you know, preserving myself. I was feeling really tired and feeling like avoiding some things that I needed to do, especially on Thursday afternoon. And I, I felt the Lord remind me that I'm not my own. But I have to confess that I run into this all the time. I don't want to do what God's appointed me to do. And so I confess that. And good news is we're having communion today. The good news is that if you came here like me with some sin that you need to confess, you can leave here cleansed. And in, ta- in fact, that's Jesus' entire reason for coming. And so he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this relocation of Jesus is a kind of a big deal. What happens is he moves from Nazareth in Zebulun to Capernaum in Naphtali. Now we see this saying, the way of the sea. What Isaiah, writing this 700 years ahead of time, would not know is that the Romans would build a road there. And it would be called the Via Maris in Latin. The way of the sea. And on this road, 15 million people would walk up and down every year. About a quarter of the entire Roman Empire would walk by Capernaum. Now we understand how the smartest man who ever walked conceived of planting his ministry in a place where there would be plenty of people. When we read about these crowds, they're all over the place on this road. This is Jesus' new headquarters. And so Jesus is preaching. What's his message? What's his message? It's very simple. I've, I've translated uh, what we heard this morning into a, maybe a more colloquial version. But the time has finally arrived. 
The stars have moved. Jupiter has led the wise men. Jesus has been born. He's been saved from Herod by move to Egypt. He's back. I've set the table. And now he's ready to start his ministry. The time has finally arrived. I am here now according to the will of my father. And he declares, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is that this wonderful rule of Jesus that he's inaugurating now and it's accessible to all. Some of you here this morning may not be super comfortable in church. Maybe a first or second time. Let me just say that Jesus has made the kingdom accessible for you this morning. You are welcome. Jesus has taken this spiritually religiously oppressive nation called Israel with the Pharisees and the Sadducees twisting the book to make their way and their thing exempt to make themselves the the religious experts and Jesus has come in and turned it all upside down or I should say right side up and has invited everyone everyone there's only one cross There's only one body and one blood that was shed for our sin. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is now open to everyone because I am here. And I am bringing good news. And I'm the one who can do it for you. And then he says, as a result of that, y'all have to think different. Including, you have to think different about everything you heard on the Sermon on the Mount. Because we're going to hear it fresh from Jesus ourselves. And we're going to go through it. We're going to mark up our, bu- our books, our study guides. We are going to read ahead for the following week. If, if, if we have questions on Sunday morning, I'm going to take the questions. All right? So whatever you have prepared, whatever you are wrestling with, Jesus is preaching good news. And he's basically saying, look, re- review your game plan for life. Whatever your game plan for life is, whatever your plans for the future are, you know, I'm going to do this in high school, I'm going to do this in college, I'm going to get this job, I'm going to go here, I'm going to retire over there, I'm going to etc., etc., etc. He's saying, wait a, wait a minute. Review your game plan for life and build your entire life on me. That's what he's saying. So this is now the coming of the kingdom, long-awaited, preaching the good news. And then he goes off and he recruits a couple of fishermen and he says to them, I will send you out to fish for people or in other translations, I'll make you fishers of men. And we wonder, why in the heck do these guys leave just like that? What is it? Well, for starters, they know the Bible. These are Jews who are in the land the last 100, 125 years. Capernaum has a huge synagogue. It is a it is the Oxford of Bible study in Jesus. And they understand their Bible. They know their Bible. When he says, I'll make you fishers of men, instantly what would pop into their heads is Jeremiah 16, 16. Jeremiah 16, 15 says, I'm going to bring you back into the land, which is what just happened to them. They have just come into the land in the last four or five generations. They're hard after the word of God. And verse 16 says, I will send fishermen to catch them. In other words, I will send fishers of men. 
And these guys know instantly. And the same with John and James. They also come in and they also respond to Jesus instantly. And we see that he preaches the kingdom, but we also see healing of every disease and sickness among the people. News spreading like wildfire all over the place, including the Golan Heights, Syria. People brought to him people with various diseases, pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. And the text implies he healed them all. And so as a result of his preaching the kingdom and the healing that follows, people are following him all over the place. And he has crowds. And so the Sermon on the Mount will be delivered to Jewish people and it will be delivered to a bunch of pagans from Decapolis and all the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so he is now uh, telling us that when you preach the kingdom, when you tell someone about the kingdom of God, when you tell them that God is opening his kingdom up to you, if you're a spiritual zero, if you're nowhere, if you have no idea what the Bible says, whatever, he's still opening his kingdom. And when we preach the kingdom, then people will get healed when we pray for them to be healed. This is the way that Jesus has brought the kingdom and the way he's authorized us to bring the kingdom. And we'll see that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, we, we ask then, well, why Dennis call this the Sermon on the Hill? Everybody knows it's called the Sermon on the Mount. I have three reasons for that. The first, the first reason for calling it Sermon on the Hill is to talk about what it actually is often compared to. It's often compared to when Moses got the Ten Commandments. And people say, uh, Jesus is just bringing a new law. He's doing way more than that. He's bringing a new teaching for sure, but he's actually not bringing a new law. He actually says the law, I've come to fulfill the law. He's actually bringing the kingdom. He's actually bringing himself. And so the mountain that the Ten Commandments took place on is this mountain here called Sinai in the lower peninsula of, of the Sinai Peninsula. And that mountain's about 7,500 feet high. And remember, in the story, Moses and a couple guys were up at the top. It was cloudy and fire and smoke was coming off of that thing. And the people down below in the valley there where you see those buildings, they were petrified. And they were told, if you even touch the mountain, you're dead. And so they did not experience this uh, in any way, shape, or form other than they were gripped with fear and told Moses, you go on up there and whatever he says is good for us. So it's much less personal and uh, much different because it really is a mountain. But now this is the Mount of the Beatitudes as seen from a fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see, it's not a mountain. It's a hill. Thus, the Sermon on the Hill. This is 500 feet above the level of the lake. It's a gentle hill. Uh, you can walk up easily, and I'm sure it would have been a great place for people to gather. And I would even guess that Jesus would be near the bottom and the people would be up at the top so that the wind from the Sea of Galilee could carry his voice and thousands and thousands of people could hear him speak without an amplification system. So it's a much more humble message. It's a much more personal message uh, delivered by the Son of God himself to us. And it's a much more inviting message. And at the same time, 
It's a way more challenging message than the message of Moses. Way more challenging, as we will see. So, and then the third reason is to tip my hat to the most humble, insightful treatment of the Sermon on the Mount that I've, I've been privileged to study, The Divine Conspiracy, written by Dallas Willard. And I commend this book to you as, a, as a, 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 just a wonderful companion to this. And if you don't have time, I will be bringing some of what Dallas had to say about this into uh, our deliberations on this. But uh, he calls it The Discourse on the Hill. And uh, so I borrowed the hill part, and uh, hopefully that will be a, a good way for us to picture this event and picture this message a little more as we go along. So what is the sermon? The sermon has all of these characteristics to it. Um, we'll cover them as we go. But it's the greatest ever teaching on the human condition. What is the blessed life? What is the highest and most glorious use of a life and how does one live this life? Which are the two questions that philosophers in various ways have wrestled with over the centuries. And uh, Dallas Willard does a bit of scholarly digging on this That, as a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. And he clearly shows that every single philosopher since Jesus, all the modern greats, all the medieval greats, all the early centuries after Christ greats, tip their hat to Jesus, whether it's Thomas Hobbes or it's Immanuel Kant or uh, John Locke, they all tip their hat to Jesus. Aquinas, Augustine, you, the list is long. And he, he, this is documented in another book that he refers you to if you read Divine Conspiracy. But what is in, impressive is uh, one might ask, well, what about the great Greek thinkers? And uh, I can't speak for all the great Greek thinkers uh, who had no access to Jesus. Um, but I did pick up Plato's Republic and I did read it in anticipation of this series. And uh, again, I'm no philosophy expert, but I can say that uh, Plato's Republic, as brilliant as it is, doesn't come close. Does not come close. And, and then the last thing I'd say is when Jesus brings uh, his teaching, he brings it in 107 verses. His economy of language, his brevity, and the sheer depth of what he says there's nothing like it on earth. And so this is the most brilliant, the greatest teaching ever given on planet earth. And so uh, that deserves a lot of attention from us, congregation. This deserves uh, a lot of thought and prayer and study. One of the philosophers that uh, uh, Dallas talks about is a guy named Robert Coles, who had a class at Harvard and he taught morality, among other things, in the School of Philosophy at Harvard. He had a student. He doesn't say her name, but she's from a Midwestern background and a low socioeconomic background, and she was in his class. She took two classes from him, actually, and she cleaned other students' rooms at Harvard to pay her way through her Harvard education. During her time at Harvard, she was repeatedly berated 
for her poor socioeconomic background. And one of the guys in her class repeatedly harassed her for sexual favors. When she came to the professor to resign from his class and resign from Harvard University, she said, I can't believe that you are a teacher of morality and you have no way of dealing with my very real moral problem. And that actually the man who's harassing me, you've given him two A's in the two classes we've taken together. I believe you're bankrupt. And she left. And in writing about this, this professor shrugs and is absolutely broken-hearted about it, but he has absolutely no knowledge upon which to act. And so Dallas goes on to say, at present, we suffer something much worse than the ethical ignorance of persons thought to be learned, in this case, the professor. In universities, there is now no recognized moral knowledge upon which efforts to foster moral development could be based. Not a single moral conclusion about behavior or character traits that a professor could base a student's grade on. We suffer from the intellectual dogma that in matters of what is morally right to be done, there is no knowledge one way or the other, only feelings and political pressures. These are totally irrational beliefs and attitudes that permeate academia. It is psychologically and socially impossible to hold others or even ourselves responsible in such an intellectual context. We can only shout at them, which we do. And so in that context, Jesus will tell us how to live in very clear terms. He is a master of the subject matter and he will also lead us into the reality that we can experience transformation from where we are to where he's teaching us to be by his power. And that's why philosophers the world over defer to this teacher. He's unique. And you may have, you may have uh, had a high view of Jesus. You may... Uh, still have a very high view of Jesus, but maybe you've never considered him to be the smartest man who ever lived. Maybe you've never been able to articulate to a friend that, yes, he's holy, yes, he's special, yes, he's compassionate, but he's absolutely brilliant. That he is the author of the periodic table. That his resume includes Genesis 1 that he is the one who puts the stars into orbit and names them all by name and never forgets one of their names. And that intellectual superiority is what we often fail to see. And I hope by the time we're done this that we see this, this Jesus in a totally new light. Amen? And then what is this sermon? What's the structure of it? People say, well, it's just a collection of sayings that the apostles put together afterwards. And what I want to clearly say is that this is one coherent message. It's brilliantly organized. It speaks in order to the things of life. You see the uh, table of contents there. We'll go through that. And Dale Swillard says it this way, to understand correctly what Jesus is asking us to do in this discourse, we must keep the order of the treatment in mind 
we are hearing from someone who has absolute mastery of the subject matter and how to present it. For example, receiving the teaching about anger and contempt depends on having received the teaching about how blessed we are. Conversely, if I'm not immersed in the reality of his kingdom, which we will get in the Lord's Prayer, then I will be inescapably driven to pursue pride and wealth. So the order is extremely important. And Jesus is talking really about one topic from beginning to end, the kingdom. The kingdom. And how we are blessed and how we obey in the kingdom. And as I said earlier, his intention is for us to obey. So how do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond to him? And I've got some ideas here. But number one, that we see him as the smartest man who ever lived. That uh, we renew our understanding of his greatness. That we let him speak afresh into our heart. And not be be guarded or worried. but, But do so with the intention to obey whatever he speaks to you. To Haggah, the text. To eat the text each week. To meditate. Scribble it up. Write down questions, and and we'll cover those things. Uh, To invite Jesus to change our heart. Okay, Lord, you're, you're saying things, and you're expecting transformation. You want me to build my life on you, then I need you to change my heart. Journal your obedience. Now, this is the part in the message where I open the floor to uh, your I will statements of just what you've heard so far this morning. Uh... Let me say, I'll share a few of mine. I will see Jesus as the most brilliant man to walk the earth, fully capable of teaching me anything I need to know at the right time. I will ask Jesus to help me be a better fisher of men. I will leave the comfort zone and go anywhere Jesus leads me. I will follow him and earnestly dig into this message so that I can give it to others without referring to pen and paper as I go. How about y'all? What's dropping in your spirit so far this morning? I will. Dot, dot, dot. Don't be shy. This is not a sermon for our enjoyment. This is to move us towards Jesus in obedience. Amen? Amen? Okay. Anybody like to share? Yeah. Let Jesus speak afresh into my heart. All right, John. Let Jesus speak afresh into my heart. All right. Excellent. Anybody else? Yeah. Amanda says she will repent of her spiritual laziness and dig into the word. Praise God. All right, Tiffany says, I will strive to follow and know Christ. Stephen. I will bless others within my sphere of influence. Wonderful. I will take the time to meditate on these scriptures. Excellent. I want you to ask each other, how are you obeying this? Tell me your I will statement. Show me how... This text is influencing your life. I want to know. And and keep each other accountable in your circles of friends. 
Because this is what Jesus came for. He came that we would know him and obey him. Worship team, come on up. Anybody else want to share? Yes. I will let the scriptures influence me, not the world. Amen? Now here's one more thing about this message and about this this text. Jesus did not come and give a TED talk and then go home in his Tesla to to his condo in Beverly Hills. Jesus came, gave this message, trained it well into 12 men, had a bit of turnover, ended up with 11, went and fetched Paul, made, made up his dozen again, and more than that, he went to the cross. He actually made the kingdom come to life by giving up entirely himself. He gave it all up. He gave his body and blood so that we, we could be full partners in the kingdom. That despite our worst sin and our worst days, we could be cleansed every single time we asked, every single time we had communion, we could be reminded that this was not an esoteric philosophical talk of which it is the finest ever given. But it was more than that. He backed it with his life. And that, that brings me to tears. That brings me to tears. That is a real savior that we can sing to and give thanks to and worship because he's worthy of that. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to open our hearts to him. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to have prayer teams up here. If you need prayer, you come for prayer. We're going to worship the Lord and we're going to have communion. We're going to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ as a full payment for our sin so that every single one of us is going to leave here on exactly the same ground forgiven, filled with grace, filled with love, filled with power, filled with the ability to walk out everything we're going to learn in this series. Father, we praise you and thank you. You are more than enough. And Jesus, you are absolutely awesome. Meet with your church now. I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The communion table is open, my friends. Brothers and sisters, prayer teams, if you could take...